Father, we're so grateful that you've given us your grace that we sang about earlier uh, and also for your truth. We thank you that Jesus is full of grace and truth and what a glorious Savior he is. So help us to see him once again as we turn our eyes towards Jesus and get back into Mark's gospel and consider how these truths apply to our hearts and our lives as we seek to be faithful to you, God. We pray for those who are listening online. Pray for all who are here, whether they're believers or not yet believers, not yet Christians. We pray, God, that your word would be a light into our path uh, and a lamp into our feet. You are so wonderful, God. We ask you to bless this time now in Jesus' precious name. Amen. All right, let's turn in our Bibles back to Mark chapter 14. And as we do that, I want you all to know that it's already mid-February of 2023, which of course means that in another month and a half, the Major League Baseball season will be starting. I know everybody was looking forward to that. It's incredible how long a baseball season is. There are 162 games in Major League Baseball over the span of six months, playing almost every night for six months. So periodically what happens during the course of such a long season is that there are blowout games like 13 to 2, right, or 10 to zip. And sometimes it's your team that just gets creamed. Hey, let's say it's my team, my beloved Los Angeles Angels. Hey, the one game I took my sons to last summer, um, they almost got no hit, hey, which means not only did they not score a run, they almost didn't even get one hit, like somebody on base. Anyways, typically after such a game, the manager or the team leader He'll say in the post-game interview something like this. Well, in baseball, these things sometimes happen, so you have to have a short memory, right? We just forget this one and move on to tomorrow's game. You can't dwell on this bad night. We've got to forget it and move forward. Well, as we come back to the Gospel of Mark this morning, we're taken to a night that should not be forgotten, ever. Okay, obviously, far, far more significant than any old baseball game, we cannot just move past this night and move forward. This is the very night of the Lord Jesus Christ's arrest. It's this night when he's taken away, tried by the authorities, and within hours, he'll be crucified on a cross by sinful men. We are going to see in this midnight hour outside of the Garden of Gethsemane, the Lord Jesus being betrayed, arrested, and abandoned. And as we see that, that abandonment of Jesus on that dark night about 2,000 years ago, abandoned by literally everyone, hey, I want us, I want us to evaluate our own relationship and loyalty to the Lord. Hey, I don't have a sermon theme or a big idea this time. I just want you to hear it. As we see the abandonment of the Lord Jesus on this dark night, I want us to evaluate our own lives and our own hearts, our relationship with him and our loyalty to him. There are two basic questions 
I want you to keep in mind um, as we go through the sermon, uh, before I read the text in just a moment, two basic questions I want you all to hear and keep in mind. Number one is this. Are you a Christian? Are you actually a Christian? After all, you're in church today. This is a Christian church. Does that mean you're a Christian? Are you really a Christian? The second basic question, if you are, first of all, if you are, praise the Lord. (laughs) Praise the Lord for his marvelous, infinite, matchless grace. But with that heartfelt praise, consider, what kind of Christian are you? What kind of Christian are you if you are, in fact, a Christian? So I'm going to read the text from Mark chapter 14. And if you are able to, please join me as I read God's word and stand. This is titled, One Dark Night to Remember. And our verses are Mark 14, verses 43 to 52. And this is the word of God. Immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, came up accompanied by a crowd with swords and clubs who were from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now he who was betraying him had given them a signal, saying, Whomever I kiss, he is the one. Seize him and lead him away under guard. After coming, Judas immediately went to him, saying, Rabbi, and kissed him. They laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, Have you come out with swords and clubs to arrest me as you would against a robber? Every day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But this has taken place to fulfill the scriptures. And they all left him and fled. A young man was following him, wearing nothing but a linen sheet over his naked body. And they seized him. But he pulled free of the linen sheet and escaped naked. Please be seated. So once again, uh, in your bulletin there, you have the simple outline of the betrayal and the arrest and the abandonment. And as we consider these points, um, once again, questions about your relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ and your loyalty to him. So looking at verse 43, it says there, immediately while he was still speaking, while Jesus was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, came up accompanied by a crowd with swords and clubs. And if you look at John chapter 18, don't turn there, but that's one of the parallel passages that describes the same incident. John chapter 18 says he was with the Roman cohort. A cohort is anywhere from 300 to 600 soldiers. So this was part of the crowd that came with Judas, along with the Jewish religious leaders who are all out for Jesus' blood. It says there the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Included in that group were the temple police and the security guards of the temple, as it were. 
So Mark continues the narrative from just before, right? From last Sunday's passage, when Jesus tells the sleepy Peter, James, and John, and the rest of the disciples, verse 41 and 42, right? The hour has come. Behold, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up, let us be going. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. So a super quick review, recap. Some of you weren't here last Sunday. But the Lord knew what was coming. He knew who was coming. He knew who was behind it all. His betrayer, Judas, is on the way, and he's about to deliver him over into the hands of sinners, as he says. Speaking of both the religious Jewish leaders and the irreligious Roman soldiers. You recall that Jesus has to stir Peter, James, and John out of their sleep as they conked out instead of watching and praying as Jesus told them to. But now he says, get up, let us be going. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. So listen, he's not saying to them, get up so that we can all escape Judas and the Roman guards. Okay? It's more like this. He's taking them to and through this hour of betrayal. Now that he has prayed to the Father agonizingly in the Garden of Gethsemane, he's prepared and readied for this moment. And Mark says what happens next happens immediately, right? In Mark, there's that sense of action and it keeps moving forward immediately, immediately. Even while he was still speaking, telling them these things, here comes Judas. Notice again in verse 43, Judas, one of the twelve. Okay, Matthew and Luke They both take pains to write that, yet again, one of the twelve, as if to say, and as if if to make sure his readers, their readers, and us, that we know, yes, this was that Judas, one of the twelve disciples who was following Jesus around for three years, and actually one of those who Jesus called and chose and trained and loved and shepherded and taught. It was that one, not a different one. And he comes up accompanied by a crowd with swords and clubs. Matthew, Luke, and John, they indicate the same thing. These men were carrying weapons as soldiers and police would do. They're ready to seize a, a dangerous criminal. John 18, verse 3 adds this. Judas then, having received the Roman cohort and officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, came there with lanterns and torches and weapons. This is in the middle of the night, right? So all of them had some sort of weapon on them okay, to take one man away. Recall, though, the fear of the scribes and the Pharisees, their fear that they had of a riot. Okay, of course, there wouldn't be too many people around at this time of night. It's after midnight at this point. Just the 11 disciples. So somehow or another, um, they think that they need a a group of three to 600 soldiers along with the chief priests and the, the scribes and Pharisees and elders and the temple police, uh, all these people to do this one thing. Notice, too, that these Romans were from the chief priests and scribes and elders. In John 18, it says, a crowd with swords and clubs who were from the chief priests, etc. So the scribes and Pharisees, their, their plans, their scheming, to destroy Jesus is coming to fruition right now. This is it. It's happening. And the point is that all these parties were together. They came together to come to take Jesus away. So verse 44 says, Now he who was betraying him had given them a signal. 
saying, whomever I kiss, he is the one. Okay, part of the scheme of Judas with these sinners is that he would give him that signal, right? A sign of which one Jesus was among the 12 men. That signal was the infamous kiss, the kiss of death. We should understand that it was common in the culture for a disciple to greet his master with a kiss back then. It was supposed to be a blessing, a sign of love and devotion. This makes Judas here that much more of a despicable character. Judas seems to be piling on the judgment, right? Fake love, deception. It's exhibited even in the manner of his betrayal. It reminds me of that proverb, right? Proverbs 27.6. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. Verse 45 says, After coming, Judas immediately went to him, saying, Rabbi, and kissed him. Hey, Matthew. Matthew writes that he said, Hail, Master. Hey, Judas acts greatly delighted to see Jesus here. Hey, this, is, this is the epitome of a hypocrite, of a faker. Judas proves himself to be one fine actor. And he would have been nominated for the winner of the AD 30 Academy Awards for best performance here. And this is a great show of affection. And that's all it was, a show. All the way to the very end, acting like he loved, believed in, respected Jesus. In Luke 22, Luke records Jesus' words there. And he says, Judas, do you betray me with a kiss? And Jesus reveals the two-faced Judas with those words. And uh, to quote the living application commentary, it says this, quote, No words convey their normal meaning if we hide their intentions. A greeting, a handshake, a promise, a kiss, each means whatever the heart means. And sometimes the heart deceives Masking a deceitful heart behind common, everyday, happy talk is both draining and destructive. Eventually, it catches up to you. It is better for you to be upfront, tell the truth, and take the consequences. Judas turned against the Lord, then hid his evil intentions behind a common greeting. But inside, his heart cracked and his life was ruined. End quote. Okay, in Judas we see a counterfeit Christian. And I know we've talked about this in the past, but it's coming up here again. Okay. Along with his betrayal, this first point, I want you to think about counterfeit Christianity or a counterfeit Christian. And I asked you to keep in mind that first question. Okay. Are you a real Christian? Are you actually a believer in Christ? And this is another warning to you this morning to beware a sobering reality a a lesson that we can learn as we've observed Judas for this last while into today listen you can call yourself a disciple of Christ and yet be a counterfeit Christian which is to say not a Christian at all you can serve in the church and be a counterfeit Christian you can There's some who are not serving in the church, 
and think they're a Christian. But you can even be serving in the church and be a counterfeit Christian. You can pray and say you love Jesus and, and be a counterfeit Christian. You can go on mission trips and be a counterfeit Christian. You can serve on committees and boards of churches and Christian institutions, even be a treasurer like Judas was, and actually be a counterfeit fake Christian. Listen, you can even teach the Bible and preach and heal people and be a counterfeit Christian. All these things were true of, of Judas. So this is a sobering reality and lesson that some of us need to hear right now, this very morning, this very moment. There's other examples in the Bible, other loving warnings from our merciful God about false teachers, false apostles, apostates, those who fall away from the faith, thought they were saved for the longest time, and it turns out they were not. And some of us know people like that, wheat and tares. It's heartbreaking, but listen, it's better to realize sooner than later in life that actually you are not a real Christian and turn from that unbelief, turn from that rejection of Jesus Christ. He would say, repent and live. Repent and live and be free. And so maybe some of us here are are a little bit older in life and closer to death. It's better to realize later in life, before it's too late, before you stop breathing, that actually you are not a real Christian. And do the same. Repent, God says, and live. Receive the gift of true forgiveness, the salvation of your soul, the eternal blessing of Heaven forever with God, with the Lord Jesus Christ. And I call you, invite you to do that even now. So that was the betrayal and the counterfeit Christian. But this leads us to our second point, which is the arrest. The arrest in verses 46 to 49. Verse 46 says, They laid hands on him and seized him. So with Judas's treacherous signal, that kiss of death, they, and this is the armed Roman soldiers, the temple police, they laid their hands on him. Okay, another translation says they clapped their hands on him. Hostile, hateful hands thrust out to seize the Lord Jesus. And the Lord does not resist the arrest. But, verse 47, but... One of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his ear. And John 18 tells us, right? And we know who it is. And Simon Peter, John 18.10. Simon Peter then, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's slave and cut off his right ear. And maybe Peter was bolstered after the soldiers all fell down. You remember that? When Jesus says, I am he, they all just drop. And so Simon comes up, and, you know, his act maybe, maybe could be seen as an act of loyalty and bravery on on Peter's part here. Coming to the Savior's rescue amid all those religious leaders, these temple police, 
these armed Roman guards, all of his enemies. Okay, there might be some truth to that. But I want you to remember the context. Remember the context. That's the most important key. Peter here, not prayerful, not spiritually alerted, unprepared, fell asleep in the garden, didn't listen to the Lord. Okay, yes, he's passionate. Yes, there's some bravery here in some sense. Yet, he's prideful. He's prideful. As if, as if God needed him at this moment. Okay, his default response was not spiritually attuned. Okay, it was, it was flesh-driven. And uh, when you look at the parallel passages and Jesus' response to Peter after he does this, John 18, 11 says, So Jesus said to Peter, Put the sword into the sheath. The cup which the Father has given me, shall I not drink it? And in Matthew 26, verse 52, the other parallel passage, says, Then Jesus says to Peter, Put your sword back into its place. For all those who take up the sword shall perish by the sword. You respond in the flesh, you're going to perish by the flesh. Or do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father, and He will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? Hey, you remember that? Right? One legion equals 6,000 angels, right? And so 12,000 times that's 72,000 angels. Right? Believe me, I'm Asian. I can do the math. Okay? So... For Peter, it was more my will be done, not the Lord's will. He has not been paying close attention to what Jesus has been saying and what he just said. The hour has come. Behold, look, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. That, That means near, like right here, right now. It's happening. So this is Peter. The boisterous, rash, impulsive, I'll say baby Christian. He acts and reacts with dependence on self. Not in the spirit. Not in the power of God. He's still mixing or confusing or desiring my will, my want, versus God's will be done. Don't we sometimes still do this in our own lives. Specifically, look, Jesus has repeatedly told him and the twelve he's going to be delivered over, he's going to be killed, even crucified. This is what will happen, what must happen. You have to keep Matthew 16 and Mark chapter 8 in mind. Listen, Mark 16, verse 21. Some of you aren't convinced that Peter is being prideful here. Mark's, uh, Matthew 16, 21, and this was like a while back. But it says, From that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. What did Peter do? Peter took him aside and began to rebuke Jesus. Saying, God forbid it, Lord, this shall never happen to you. And we like to think, well, that's, that's a good thing, right? But Jesus turns and says to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. Why would Jesus say that? For you are setting your mind on man's interests and not on God's interests. 
Okay, my will be done versus God's will be done. So back to Mark 14. Peter's pride is evidenced in his focus on self, in his own strength, in his own prayer, prayerless flesh. Just before he said, I'll never leave you, Lord. I'll never deny you, even if I have to die with you. That same night, just an hour or so ago, well, how empty were those words? As unready, as fleshly, as prayerless, as carnal. This is the word I want you to think about, carnal Christian. As immature as a baby Christian, Simon was. He takes out a man's ear, probably even for his head. Listen, if he succeeded in that, he would have cut off his head and been guilty of murder, right? Taken away and probably crucified as well. But soon after, he flees the scene. He abandons Jesus, which we'll see in a moment. And soon after that, he's denying him three times, just like Jesus said he would. Peter here can be seen as a carnal Christian. And I ask you a question at the beginning, and I ask it again. What kind of Christian Are you, if you are actually, a Christian? So when I say carnal Christian, I mean like a fleshly Christian. Like someone who acts and reacts to things in life or different situations or different decisions and does those things in the flesh and not in the spirit. Makes decisions by their own will rather than God's will. And I have to give you a very quick but important, by the way, I don't believe there's such a thing as a perpetually carnal Christian. I don't even like the phrase, to be quite honest. Like this. Oh, he's a Christian, but he's just got a really bad temper. Don't get him angry, or you're going to receive an earful from him. Or, oh, well, she's a Christian. She just has a hard time submitting to her husband and yells at him every day. And that's not a Christian. Oh, yes, he's a Christian. He just has a bad porn addiction been watching it every day for years. Or, oh yes, she's a Christian. It's just that she hasn't been walking with the Lord for the last 10 years. According to Paul in Galatians chapter 5, you can turn there with me if you want, or you can just listen as I read it. According to the Bible, and this is one place, Galatians 5, verses 19 to 21, I'll just read it for you. It says, Verse 19, Galatians 5. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, that's porneia, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, which is putting anything above God. Anybody guilty of that this morning, perpetually? Sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, And things like these, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, it's a double warning from the Apostle Paul here, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So in other words, someone who is perpetually living in the flesh, by the flesh, who practice such things, that this is their life, this is their pattern, this is their character, they will not inherit the kingdom of God. There's no heaven for you. There's no such thing as a Christian who is ruled by the flesh or lives in the flesh, by the flesh like that. Romans 6, verses 5 through 7. You can just jot it down. I won't read it, but 
It, it says basically that Christians, real Christians, true Christians, are no longer slaves to our sin, no longer slaves to our flesh, our lusts, our passions. Rather, we have freedom in Christ. We have freedom to follow Jesus joyfully. So that very quick but very important note being said, I ask again, are you a Christian who is characterized by living according to God's will? Is your desire like Matthew 6, verse 9, when Jesus tells the disciples how to pray, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And I asked you that not on a global world level, like we just we want the earth, like the world and everything to, to be like it is in heaven and things to be just and right. I'm talking about personally, individually. Is that your prayer for your own life and your own heart? Are you, are you obeying the Lord Jesus Christ? And is that what your will is to pray your will be done. Is your life really 1 Corinthians 10, 31? For whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, anything that you do, do it for the glory of God. Do you have this confidence as the Apostle John writes in 1 John 3, verse 21? Beloved, he says, don't you love the Apostle John? Well, I love him. Beloved, He says, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him. Because, and that because is the key here, right? Because we keep his commandments. We we do what we're supposed to do as Christians. And we do the things that are pleasing in his sight. It reminds me of that other verse in, in Corinthians, right? Paul says, we make it our ambition to be pleasing to the Lord. So I touched on this uh, in our past Wednesday care group at our home. Um, and I, but I asked the question again, are your motivations and decision-making process in life and in life matters seeking the Lord's will or your own will? And that can apply to so many different things, can it, big and small? Let me remind you of James 4, verses 13 to 17. Again, you can turn there or you can just listen. James 4, verse 13 says, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. Verse 14 says, Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, What? If the Lord wills we will live and also do this or that. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Therefore, to one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. These are strong words from, from James, strong words from God himself. And some of us, again, need to take this to heart this morning. All of this was to fulfill God's word. Going back to Mark chapter 14. Verses 48 and 49. Jesus says to them, Have you come out with swords and clubs to arrest me as you would against a robber? Every day I was with you in the temple teaching, 
and you did not seize me. But this has taken place to what? To fulfill the scriptures. Okay, can I read Isaiah 53 to you? For time's sake, I won't read the whole thing. Um, but I'll read a few verses. Isaiah 53, verses 3 and 7 and 8. Hey, listen, the, the scriptures being fulfilled as we consider Jesus like evil, sinful men, like putting their hands on the Lord, right? Take him away, treat him like a, a, a criminal. Verse 3 says, He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Verse 7, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, Yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter, and like a sheep that is silent before its shears, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people, to whom the stroke was due? Okay, this was happening the way it was written to be. He would be betrayed handed over to wicked, evil, sinful men, hated and judged by those who had no right. Okay, he was in the temple, like he said, pretty much every day, the most public place in town. They could have arrested him at any point. But no, not until now. And this was going all according to God's schedule, God's timing, God's promise, God's word. It was being fulfilled on this dark night in Gethsemane that we should not forget. Before we leave this point, and before we leave even that question of what kind of Christian am I? Hey, living by my flesh or by the Spirit, I want us just to note quickly the compassion of our dear Lord. And he had compassion on the guy the high priest slave who, who got his ear cut off on good old Malchus, right? John says, he, he, I think it's John, he just heals him right on the spot there. Um, Judas, hey, that question, you betray me with a kiss? Maybe to, to raise again in, in Judas's mind just exactly what he's doing. Compassion on Peter. Hey, I think that was a firm yet mild rebuke that he gives to him. Hey, Jesus is never harsh. Hey, even in the darkest, gloomiest moments. And Jesus' compassion on the rest, right? I mentioned to you from John, uh, those, those Roman guards, they fell down uh, upon him saying, I am he, that great I am, right? And really, he could have asked his father to send a, an angelic army to destroy those evil men. Okay, they were at his mercy. He was not at their mercy. But he chooses compassion for these wicked hell-bent men. He chooses to submit to their arrest, continues his road to the cross to die for their sins. And so I ask you, once again, those who don't yet know Christ, would you put your faith in this beautiful, compassionate, almighty Savior and Lord? There's only one. There's only one Savior. There's only one way to be forgiven all of your sins. And to live, as Jesus says, even if you die, even when you die, you will live, you'll be raised up with him. Have you given your life over to his saving grace and his loving lordship? He's calling you to do that even now.
So we've seen the betrayal and the arrest, and we've considered the counterfeit Christian. We've considered the fleshly, carnal Christian. Our last point is the abandonment in verses 50 to 52. Verses 50 to 52, and it shows us the cowardly Christian. Okay, verse 50 says, And they all left him and fled. And when it says they all there, it refers specifically to Peter, James, and John, right? The three who were with him inside the garden. And the other eight disciples who were with Jesus in Gethsemane there. And seeing that the Lord is not going to fight this, he's offering no resistance to his arrest, their courage suddenly leaves them. Their faith fails. Is this really the Messiah? Okay, they completely abandon Jesus. To quote one commentator, he says, All their hopes crashed in this dark hour, and their faith was demoralized. But in reality, their love remained. But there is the tragic fact. They fled. End quote. And notice, all left him and fled. Not one of them was left. He was completely forsaken by his closest 11, including his closest three, Peter, James, and John, including the leader, Peter, who just an hour or so ago said, Never will I leave you, Lord. And additionally, verses 51 and 52, and this thing that only Mark mentions, a young man was following him, wearing nothing but a linen sheet over his naked body, and they seized him. But he pulled free of the linen sheet and escaped naked. And many have commented uh, that this is probably the gospel writer Mark himself. And that's because he's the only one who mentions that detail, and he remains anonymous. He doesn't say who it is. But it seems to me that it could be him, but the Bible doesn't tell us anywhere else, and it doesn't give us much of a clue that it's actually Mark. So I think it remains unknown. It could have been any young man. The point seems to be that whoever this young man was, he appears to know Jesus well enough and be concerned enough to be following him out of his house or even out of his bed, linen sheet around him late in the night. At some point, the Roman soldiers notice this guy who's following, and so they go to arrest him too. It says they, they, tried, they seized him. But he leaves behind that linen sheet and escapes in nothing but his birthday suit. The point being, this follower flees as well, just like the rest of them. Okay, so the point is, cowardly Christians. What kind of Christian are you? When Jesus was arrested, okay, he wasn't resisting. Okay, the disciples were shaken. Right? They were shaken. And this young man was as well. They all run away. That word, to forsake, to abandon, it means to flee, to vanish. They sought their own safety by running. They left Jesus behind. And just a quick, by the way, you know, whenever we're leaving this church campus, and I tell our young folks this, and just the previous church, and just, um, you know, I, I, I remind them, don't ever leave anyone behind when you drive off this church campus. Okay, always leave together, day or night. Don't leave any fellow person behind in our church. But these 
once brave men, disciples, literally run away and vanish into the night. Just before, they were convinced, no way, they would never do it. All saying, oh, we'd die before we do that. We'll never leave you. But when the hour of testing came, what happened? They melt away into the shadows. They leave their Lord alone with his enemies. So consider ourselves. We might not want to be too hard on these men. How about if we found ourselves in their situation? And one pastor brings up uh, something that happened 20-something years ago, April 20th, 1999. Two guys named Eric Harris and Dylan Klebold, they went on a shooting rampage at Columbine High School in Littleton, Colorado. They murdered 12 students and a teacher that day. They wounded 23 other people. Among their victims was a student named Cassie Bernal, And uh, Eric Harris, one of the shooters, found Cassie hiding under a computer table. So he kneels down beside her and asked, Do you believe in God? And when she said yes, Harris killed her. And the question for us is, what, what would we have done? In the days of the old Soviet Union, soldiers entered a meeting place where Christians were meeting in secret, worshiping the Lord. And the soldiers enter in and yell, If you are an unbeliever, leave now. If you are a believer, line up against the wall. Most of the crowd leaves. A few faithful believers go to the wall and to their deaths, refusing to dishonor the Lord who bought them. The question is, what would we have done? And to bring it home to ourselves here, the question is, what does it take for us to abandon Jesus. What does it take for us to not stand with him, not continue following him, not continue being faithful and loyal to him? When are you tempted to bail on your Lord Jesus, leaving him hanging, so to speak? We all have those situations in life, right? Whether it's around unbelieving family or unbelieving friends and maybe in a a conversation, a group conversation. Maybe it's a one-on-one conversation. And instead of turning the conversation towards the Lord, to these unbelievers who are lost, we do anything but talk about the Lord Jesus and their spiritual condition. Well, being in unbelieving environments, whether it's in the workplace or at school, parties, gatherings, outings, Do we abandon Jesus at that time? Would people even know we're Christians? Pastor Kevin DeYoung shares the story of when he was a seminary student, and uh, they were all watching a movie, and a a scene came up where sexual immorality of the kind um, that was being joked about in the movie, like with an elbow and a nudge, (laughs) ha, 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 right? And it was like, um, like in the Bible, Absalom taking his father, David's concubines, okay? That kind of thing. Uh, It was Indiana Jones and his older father, right? They found out they're involved with the same woman. And it's supposed to be funny, right? And the seminary students there were kind of chuckling and laughing about it because it's supposed to be humorous. Until one of them said, and I don't know if he stopped the movie or said it later, but 
Guys, this is basically incest. Hey, it's not it's not funny at all. And it's immoral and perverted. Uh, let's let's not be laughing at what God says is completely gross. Hey, that's that's not abandoning Jesus, right? That's standing with and for Jesus and righteousness as an example. But maybe it's just in the you know, just the environment of unpopular beliefs, right? And just there's conversations going or it's um, just, again, uh, whether at work or, or just in a, a messaging thing or whatever with the LGBTQ issues, trans, um, just gender issues, uh, biblical marriage, a same-sex marriage, sexuality in itself, um, pro-life versus abortion, race issues, critical race theory, biblical justice versus real, uh, biblical real justice versus what quote-unquote social justice, biblical manhood and womanhood, roles in God's beautiful design. Uh, when those issues come up, when those conversations come up, hey, do, we, do we stand with Christ, stand up for truth in love? So I, I shared this quote during our care group time, but I think it's worth um, sharing once again. But um, it says this, Nobody is temptation-proof. Even mature Christians have weaknesses in their spiritual armor that make them vulnerable to a wounding attack by the enemy of their souls. Our pride can provide the very opening needed for the sharp thrust of a satanic dart. So can the love of money, quick temper, critical tongue, or chronic impatience. What, after all, is temptation? It's any enticement to think, say, or do something contrary to God's holy will. It might be a weak impulse or a powerful urge. It's anything that's against what God approves or desires for us. So um, it kind of just goes on sharing the, the, the old story, the Greek mythology story of Achilles and how... Um, his mom just learning that he would be um, protected, but warned that he would die of a wound. So she dips him in the, uh, as a baby in the river Styx. And it was supposed to make him invincible, but she's holding him by the heel, right? And so the protective waters of the river Styx didn't cover that. And so it was through that heel that he received his fatal wound. And so each of us should ask that question, right? Where is my Achilles heel? Where am I spiritually vulnerable? Um, what is my weakness that I could be wounded spiritually? And so we must rely on the Lord for help and ask for protection from temptation and Satan's fiery darts. So as we wrap up here, um, looking upon this one dark night to remember, uh, I, I don't want us to do this with discouragement or despair. Okay? This is meant to bring hope. Uh, Jesus is God. He's God in human flesh who gives actual, real hope, certainty to sinners like us. So if you're not a Christian this morning or unsure, okay, I would beckon you to, to come to me. Or come talk to Brother Pastor Bill or a, another brother or sister in Christ um, in this church so that we can help you. I would even invite you to, to come join that New Life in Christ class where I'm going to be teaching the gospel thoroughly. 
But if you are a Christian, you too have hope because we know that even though the 11, uh, 11 disciples who all bailed out on Christ that night, that wasn't the end of the story for them, was it? Hey, Peter, as the ringleader, and all of them spiritually grew. They knew and loved Jesus, and they became bold and mature in their faith. Hey, they were not counterfeits. They were not carnal. They were not cowardly. And they became committed Christians. True to life, committed Christians. Committed to follow Jesus Christ no matter what. And that should give us hope. Okay, all, all of them ended up Luke 9, 23, and 24-ing it, right? If anyone desires to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will find it. And that's what they found. In the end, they all ended up abandoning, not Jesus, they ended up abandoning themselves, their own will, their own flesh, their own desires for him and the gospel. And they found true life in him and with him. May all of us here this morning do the same today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, once again, I thank you and praise you for your amazing grace toward us, grace that is greater than all our sin, and your precious truth, the truth of your word, gospel truth, which each of us need this morning, right now, and every day of our lives. Thank you, God, that you offer us hope and freedom and joy And it's all because of what Jesus has done for us on the cross. Thank you so much for this time in your word. And I pray that we would be faithful to apply it to our lives. For we pray in Christ's name. Amen.